I will tell you to this day, the best season of arena football was the first year in terms of the way it operated because we did not have owners involved. And I know there's probably people out there that might hear this that cringe when I say that, but we ran it like a business. We did not have a doctor in Topeka or a, a dentist in in Dallas or a, a ball bearing manufacturer in uh, Birmingham that said, "No, this is how I'm going to do it." You know, uh, because the George House said it so well before Congress in the early '60s when there was some discussion about the antitrust of the NFL. And he said, you know, a league is only as good as its weakest league, and it is so absolutely true. It's it's like the anthem to what can go wrong with, with sports leagues. And, you know, it's a creeping crowd. If you get three or four bad owners, even one or two sometimes, they can ruin uh, an otherwise good league. And, and in essence, go back to the USFL. That's what happened. Go back to the World Football League. That's what happened. You could go to a lot of other leagues and other sports. And I did not want that to happen. And that's why I stuck by my guns. And that was the downside after the end of the first year, it was because a lot of guys said, I don't buy a franchise, I'm not going to get involved, to which I said politely, well, then you don't see the value of what I'm trying to do. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings, salutations, how's it going? Tim Hanlon here. How are you? Thanks for joining me on Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. And uh, thank you for coming back uh, for what is now part two of our conversation with the Arena Football League founder, the originator, the uh, the entrepreneur, the guy behind all of it, uh, Jim Foster. And uh, as you uh, might have heard in our previous episode, uh, the beginnings of our conversation with Jim, and if you haven't listened to it, I highly encourage you to give it a spin before uh, listening to this one. Uh, that's our episode 43. You can find that on goodseatstillavailable.com uh, or any of your uh, podcast uh, places of choice. You'll be able to find that. Just look for episode 43. That is last week's episode uh, for part one of our chat. And we learned quite a bit uh, from Jim those early days, the uh, formation of the idea, uh, his move towards actually making that idea into reality, uh, the various fits and turns of that and uh, we uh, pick up our conversation uh, in just a couple of uh, seconds uh, around sort of that uh, inaugural, that true inaugural game and season in 1987 uh, of the Arena Football League. And then obviously lots of uh, interesting uh, turns uh, and twists uh, in the story from, uh, from then on uh, in his uh, follow-on years as the uh, commissioner uh, of the Arena Football League. We talk about things like uh, getting the whole damn thing patented, uh, which was an interesting uh, interesting story, an interesting journey, uh, and clearly uh, some, some differences of opinion uh, by owners about the proper business model and uh, just all kinds of interesting things. And again, uh, it's very interesting uh, and timely conversation given uh, where our uh, current version of uh, uh, the Arena League is right now, which is... Uh, Frankly, not all that uh, that great. It's uh, obviously come through different uh, ownerships and managements. Uh, and uh, as we record this, the uh, second week of January of 2018, uh, we're looking at a season that uh, may not even happen this year, as we're, I think, now down to uh, four uh, franchises, one in Philadelphia, two in the uh, Baltimore-Washington area owned by the same team, uh, a new franchise in Albany, New York, a return to Albany. Uh, but uh, two other franchises taking a pause, one permanently, that being Tampa Bay, suspending operations 
and uh, the other, Cleveland, which uh, looks like they're going uh, on hiatus, at least to describe it as such, uh, for the next two seasons uh, under the description or the uh, the excuse, I guess, of the arena there going through uh, renovations during the next two summers. So we'll see. It's clear that uh, arena football is is a compelling product. It's very fun to watch. Uh, it's got a rich history, as we'll learn from from uh, Jim in our part two of our conversation. But uh, how it goes forward, I think, uh, uh, interestingly, may need to go back to some of the uh, original ideas that Jim had, that is it being a centrally owned uh, and operated league. And uh, perhaps that's how the future of the Arena Football League looks like. But let's get into that conversation in just a couple of seconds with part two with Jim Foster, the founder of the AFL and the uh, the entire concept of arena football uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is our uh, sponsor uh, that we'd like to uh, call and shout out and remind you that a 15% discount at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is yours for the taking when you use promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. And of course, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com uh, is the place to go for all kinds of fun uh, memorabilia of all different uh, shapes and sizes uh, from various teams and leagues that uh, are still with us uh, and many more that are not with us. Uh, and you'll find just a treasure trove, a potpourri, if you will. First time I've used that word in 2018. Uh, a potpourri of sports memorabilia across uh, all kinds of professional, even collegiate and even international uh, competitions such as Olympics, et cetera, tennis, et cetera. You'll see it all there. Uh, you'll get some interesting history as well as some compelling prices for uh, memorabilia that you just didn't know you needed. Uh, that's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Spell it correctly. And make sure when you go into uh, said site, sportshistorycollectibles.com, use the promo code GOODSEATS for your 15% discount for any purchase you make there at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Thank you to Dean Mitchell. Thank you to the site. And we appreciate your sponsorship uh, as always. Okay, let's uh, segue uh, nice and smooth, see, right into our conversation of part two in nature uh, with Jim Foster, the founder, the originator of the original Arena Football League and the entire Arena Football concept uh, and a very engaging chat uh, that we continue here on the show. You know, that showcase game, right, which was after the, the actual test game, right, was uh, this was really your sort of your coming out party, right, at the Rosemont Horizon, now now known as the Allstate Arena here in suburban Chicago. Um, yeah. But this is where the whole thing kind of really was sort of set up. And I don't know if it was make or break, right, but this was kind of uh, this was like the big debut. It's like a Broadway uh, opening, no? Well, yeah, because I, I did things in steps, as I think I previously discussed with you and or talked about. And, you know, the, the game in, in Rockford, which I believe we, we uh, talked about, was, uh, was a pivotal moment because that was the first time it was played before a live audience. But it was also in Rockford. It was, you know, 1,500 people approximately. Uh, we did the market research study that came out very well. But I knew after that two things. One, that it was viable. But I also had to have a, 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 a proverbial second opinion. And there's an old saying, if it'll play in Peoria, will it play in uh, New York or whatever, you know, or Philadelphia in terms of Broadway? And this was very similar in my mind. It played in Rockford, which is no, not all that far from Peoria, and a, uh, pretty much the same size, ironically. 
And so now we went to Chicago and, uh, I was, uh, I had a fellow involved me. He was a pretty legendary player for the bears back in the, some of the gory days named Doug Buffon out of, uh, Louisville, uh, who was an all pro linebacker and played next to Dick Butkus side by side. So he, in his own right, was a great player and probably would have even had more recognition that he hadn't been playing with Butkus, but the two of them were pretty formidable, uh, when they were with the bears and, uh, Doug, Doug was in Chicago, and through a couple people that I knew, Doug ended up getting involved. He thought it was a pretty interesting game. He had actually played a little bit of two-way football uh, in college at Louisville as well as up all the time in high school, and he liked the concept. So Doug helped promote that game, and and he was uh, it, 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 there were a couple of things that we got done that were pretty pertinent. One was that we got to a, a large metropolitan audience, which was important because you had all these other professional teams in Chicago. And in fact, the Chicago Bulls ended up playing that night. They were, this was pre-Michael Jordan, so they were not uh, uh, the factor they would become a couple years later. But we're up against an NBA team. You also had the Blackhawks out there on the road that night. Uh, so the two wintertime teams uh, were not uh, not head-on. The one was on head-on. I believe that the day that was February February twenty second. I'm trying to remember what it was now, but it was a you know it was a cold winter night, and I was worried about that. How many people were going to show up for that game? February twenty seventh. Uh, how many people were going to show up for that game where the weather wasn't particularly good? But yeah, you know, we had a we had a great crowd. We had over eight thousand people there, and uh, and it really repeated what happened in 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 Rockford but on a much grander scale because we're in a much bigger market. I was at that time the number two market in the country, a great sports market. Uh, and also we were able to actually videotape that game as though it was a live production. Uh, Doug Buffon did the color and he worked with a, a well-known sportscaster who was a good friend of his from his days with the Bears by the name of Chet Kopic. And Chet did the play-by-play and he had quite a bit of experience at a fairly high level with that, college and pro. So they actually sat in the broadcast booth, and and it, it took a little extra money to do it, but I felt it was pertinent that we have that important, and we actually did that game as though it was a television game, and and I still have the masters of that. We produced a game. We even took some uh, the sponsors that I knew were interested, and in I got their spots, so we dropped them in. And what we had in the can at the end, which a lot of people don't even realize that have followed the history of football, so we ended up with a game tape that we could then take two sponsors, take the football players we were trying to recruit, to coaches, et cetera. And we weren't quite at that point yet to do that, but now it comes back to what you said. This game doesn't come off well, either with it, with the research, which we did another version, the same, the same research study, but I wanted a second opinion on that, a second set of numbers. Uh, I had ESPN there that night. I had United Airlines there that night. I had... Uh, some of the other major sponsors, I think, uh, Roger Renicar was there. I'm trying to think Budweiser was there, uh, and some others that came to really assess us. And a, a number of arena managers came that night too to see what it was all about because they were very, very interested in the potential of what I was doing. And, and it was a summer month programming uh, product uh, that they needed more of that in the summer. And, and some of the arena managers, quite frankly, behind the scenes, particularly uh, the fellow that ran the uh, uh, Rosemont Horizon, uh, as it was called, Van Nuys State Arena. Rick Bjorklund was a real uh, driving force in the early days of helping me 
uh, in Chicago. And thank God he was there. Doug Logan was in Rockford, and, and Doug was there that night, too. And Doug had opened his doors in, in Rockford for me. And then he actually reached out to Rip York on the Renew and said, Jim wants to do a game at a bigger market. Would you work with him? Uh, and both those guys, in my opinion, should be in the Arena Football Hall of Fame for what they did as contributing, uh, key contributors to the early days of the league. And, and a lot of that's fallen by the wayside. The fact that the league hasn't even done anything with the Hall of Fame for several years now under the current commissioner and, and, and operation. But uh, those are people that, that – there's some people in the early days. Doug, uh, and I'll tell you another guy, was a very important guy, Dennis Grapethan, director of, uh, of uh, sports balls marketing the sports balls that Wilson sells uh the NFL game ball most importantly uh he was responsible for that uh Wilson basketballs Wilson golf balls you know all the different things that they do so well he loved the game he was my first sponsor to commit uh and and uh, Wilson cut a deal with me and it came out of that game that night uh, that I realized that there were going to be a lot of balls going up in the stands. Now, we had a full set of working nets that night for the first time. Rockford was uh, kind of jury-rigged. It looked like the real thing. It wasn't really strong right. But I spent the money. Uh, <laughs> a good chunk of what went into that game was building the, that prototype set of nets uh, and making sure they worked right, and they did. Uh, they were a great part of the game. But the rally came that uh, we were going to have balls going into the stands that we'd have to retrieve, which was the original idea why I came up with the nets in the first place. And that was that uh, they would serve as a backstop, much like the slack nets that they started putting up in the NFL in the early 80s when I was pro promotion manager of the league. And that's where the, you know, part of the idea for the nets came about from. But we also realized that here it passes, and we saw some of the Rockford as well, but Rockford was set up with a kind of a high wall, uh, and we didn't have any seating right down at ground level, so we didn't have very many cases of just a few errant balls that got tipped. But in the Rosemont Horizon, uh, we had situations where balls were going in the stands, and I said, we're going to have to come up, and, and, I, and, and I had people say, well, I'll just put glass up like for hockey. I said, no, that's not, that's not football, and I'm not going to go away from football as much as it can be, particularly with the intimacy of the game. I wanted to maintain that. So I said, we're gonna, the fans are going to sit there, and they're going to be right on the wall, uh, and uh, they're going to have to be uh, vigilant of, of a ball coming at them, but that's been a huge part of selling those low seats in arena football, those low lower, lower bowl seats. I mean, people pay a premium in many cases, so they can sit there and be right there when uh, some player gets run into the wall, or a ball flies up in the air, or an errant pass. And, but because of that, I said to Dennis Grabethan, would you entertain the idea of, uh, as the sponsor, and this is what's the matter of the deal, uh, providing us with footballs for free, it's a trade deal, and give us a pretty reasonable number, because we had no idea what we would go through a year, or a team per game even, and, and it averaged, ends up averaging anywhere from 12 to 20 a game typically, uh, but it was a great promotional deal for fans to be able to take that ball home. And that was the concept that had never been done before. Uh, you, you took home a, a very valuable football. Uh, and, and in many cases got it autographed afterwards by a player because the players are so accessible in arena football to sign autographs after the game. And yeah, so that was, that, that came out of that, that game, but overall what came out of it was uh, a lot of pleased people, uh, from sponsorship side, potentially from broadcast side, 
uh, coaches that were there, uh, right on down the line. The fans that were there, a lot of positive, positive feedback. Got some pretty good feedback in the media in Chicago, which was tough to do because it wasn't the real thing yet. And, and you know, that's a big market. And it's a, it, and at that time, there was still a lot of old school, particularly on the print side, journalists that were uh, Cooperallo and, and I'm trying to remember the name of the guy that uh, Bernie Lincecum from the Chicago Tribune. I mean, these guys, these these guys weren't dishing out uh, compliments to anybody, <laughs> and particularly if it wasn't major league. Yeah, not in their DNA. No, no. There's and there there are lots of crusty uh, uh, veteran types uh, that uh, were. Legendary. Oh yeah, there was a, there was a guy with the Sun Times that was even worse. I can't think of his name now. He was really old school, and they I, and I forget the name of the editor for Chicago Tribune Sports. Nice guy, but I went in and had a meeting with him after we started the league. You know that several months later, we we made a commitment within weeks to go. But during that first season, we were having a hard time getting coverage on the on the, on the Chicago Bruisers, and they were doing fairly well. And I went in to meet with him, and he basically said to me, "Look, this is the way it works. Uh, lines of lines of copy are related to thousands of seats in the butts, or butts in the seats." Uh, and uh, he said, "That's how it works, you know. So if you're the Chicago Bears and you're doing sixty thousand people, you're going to get a lot more coverage than the, uh, on a prorated basis. Uh, if the Bulls are only drawing three thousand, they should be drawing ten thousand. You know, it's all relative. If Northwestern's only drawing eighteen thousand for a football game, they're sure not going to get the kind of coverage out of us as if they're putting fifty thousand in, in the stands. Now, the interesting thing about that comment at the time, but I, I really was trying to be polite and not get into. I knew the value of this guy. You don't get in a in an argument with somebody of that stature and of that mindset. But I was thinking about the, the situation with television, which was becoming more and more important. And quite frankly, I don't think in his mind that that really was relevant. You know, I, I don't. I think it was, but it wasn't because he kept talking about seats and, and so. And I and I and I did briefly say, well, you know, we're going to have a game a week on national television. Oh, that's nice. Some people can get to see it, then they can't get to the game. But that, it, so you know, we were going through that that period of time where print journalism was starting to. Uh, not be as I wouldn't say relevant, but it is main. It wasn't the end all or be all in terms of along with radio delivering you know sports product. And, you know, it, it, the television was becoming a much much bigger player on a regular basis because obviously ESPN was in business and they only been around for three or four years at that point. And that was a huge break for us coming out of that game. That game that night got us a commitment for ESPN. I got a letter in January from them out, out, uh, outlining documenting what they were willing to do, which is basically a game of the week and the pickup production costs. And I would have to, uh, you know, they were going to give me some advertising time uh, to sell. Uh, but they really wanted me to do a second. And I wanted to do the second game, and they thought that was a great idea, too. They had representation in Rockford, but they wanted to see it in a major market, in a major arena. And they were they were ecstatic that night. They said, let's go. At the end of the game, it's like, we got a deal. Yeah, that was huge. So, so, but that, so, so that led to then what you called a demonstration season that started later in the year in June of '87, correct? The previous season, because even at that point, with the original success we had, I still wanted to kind of couch it in, and I wanted to be able. There was a little not hesitancy, but I didn't want to go all the way to bright yet. So I called it the previous season. It was a, it was a season. It counted. The records were for real. But I still, and the reason I did that was because we weren't playing a full slate of games. We played a shorter season. We we kept our costs down. We only played with four teams. 
I, I, I was really trying to do this rollout carefully because in, for starters, I didn't have a lot of money to work with. I, I, I didn't, I didn't have a big trust fund behind me. I didn't have venture capitalists. Uh, it was a hard sell to get the money for this because people, there were people who were maybe in some respects really excited about it, but most of the people who were excited about it were not really necessarily people that, that, uh, uh, had a lot of funds. You know, <laughs> that's usually the way it works. The guys that had lots of money either wanted to try to take control of it right away, uh, which will become a battle later on, uh, you know, for their own ego purposes or because, you know, they thought, you know, they had a better way to do it, although they had very little idea what was really involved. Uh, or, uh, you know, they were just conservative people with, with hedge funds or, you know, money to, to potentially invest, but they, they, they didn't really that actively look at something like a off-the-wall sports venture, which is what a lot of people thought of it at that point. It, it, you know, once it got on the air nationally on ESPN, that started to change. The phone lit up, and we had a lot of people calling that were both valid prospective uh, parties and some that weren't. And, of course, that was an interesting scenario in itself because I wanted to play, play keep the league, uh, run it as a single entity league, which was something else that nobody had ever done before in sports in this country. And I take as much pride in that as I do in the game game arena football because it's it's the right way, in my opinion, to run professional sports leagues in this country. Uh, I, I'll, I'll put a caveat around that and say, okay, at this point, the major leagues are very well established. They have a great flow of revenue coming out of network television and, and other proprietary uh, areas of programming. But even at that time, you know, the NBA was wobbly at times, the NHL was wobbly at times. Uh, but when you look at anything below that today, it's not easy. Uh, it's still not easy because you don't have that big, fat pot of, of, of television revenue coming to you. I mean, if you pull that on the NFL right now, out of the, out of the NFL or Major League Baseball, they'd be in all kinds of trouble, particularly the NFL. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, and and the and really for that matter, the NBA as well, and the NHL. I mean, that TV revenue is is that's the cash cash cow. Uh, you know, you want your seating and you want your you know in market sponsorship dollars as well. But uh, that's 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 the that's what floats the boat. And when you get to the level anything below that, you know, whether it's the AHL or Major League Baseball or, or arena football or many, many things of that nature, uh, you don't have that revenue coming in. So you've got to work a lot harder at selling seats and selling sponsorships. And, uh, and that, that was so, it was very important to get that ESPN deal because when you're at the minor league, we, we were a minor league product, but we had national television. We were actually probably, I think for all practical purposes, and I was told this several times, the first non-major league to really get uh, a national TV deal. Uh, now, well, having said that, you could go back to the World Football League in in, in seventy three four. Uh, they they had a syndicated national television deal. Uh, certainly, uh, the USFL uh, was a nationally televised product, but the USFL really, I have to say, and having been a part of it, uh, was more of a major league product. I mean, it was very very well funded. Uh, it was in major markets. Uh, did some pretty significant numbers. Uh, obviously. Got got off the track from where it was supposed to be, and, and our current president had a lot to do with that, unfortunately. But I'll just leave it at that. But suffice to say that, with the exception of that, there really wasn't. You know, you had uh, the AFL that merged with the NFL. Uh, you had a couple other leagues that you know, the ABA basketball had some television, but I don't think I'm not sure they ever had a national TV contract. So uh, we were very very fortunate to get that, and that really gave us. 
credibility across the country. I mean, you could, no matter where you lived, if you had access to ESPN, you might see and know about arena football. And that was a huge step forward for us right out of the gate. And we did some significant numbers and ratings. Yeah, and an interesting little tidbit here, right? I think uh, most people think that the first game uh, was the uh, June 20th, 1987 game. That was actually the second game. That was the first ever televised game. It was actually the night before when you played, uh, I guess it was uh, Pittsburgh and Washington. Pittsburgh played Washington. Pittsburgh played it. it we played at home in Pittsburgh in front of a sellout crowd. It was a raucous crowd. They loved it. A close game with Washington. Uh, Pittsburgh won, as I remember. Uh, the next night we played in Chicago, and it was uh, Tim Markham's uh, Denver Dynamite versus Ray Ox Chicago Bruisers. We actually would have probably preferred to open the game on Friday night on TV, but there was a conflict on ESPN, and we couldn't get around it. So we we went to a we went to the Saturday night, and we had our contract was one game a week. We only played two games. Uh, and basically, it was supposed to be a Saturday night game, and that was the other issue too. That we, the first game was going to have to be on a Friday night, and we did that deliberately because we. Wa- I, I did not want to have two games going off concurrently the same time. I mean, especially the, the first time around. Uh, I thank God I was in Chicago because nobody bothered to read the rule book to find out what the overtime rules were. <laughs> and that's a that's a famous little bit of uh, broadcast uh, 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 trivia and, and uh, a pretty interesting clip. Somebody said it's on YouTube somewhere uh, because, uh, oh, I forget the guy doing the play-by-play, but the color guy was the... The announcer was Bob Rathburn and uh, Lee Corso. Yeah, Bob Rathburn. Yeah, Lee was doing the color, and of course, right out of right out of the box, you say Lee Corso. <laughs> and there was confusion. So if you go if you go find that on on uh, on YouTube, and we'll, when this episode airs, we'll make sure that we've got a clip to it on our, our website. Yeah. Oh, because I'm down on the field as a, as the clock's winding down, and I'm realizing we're going to go to overtime, and I had I detested. The idea of, of no overtime. I detested the idea of a tie game. I never liked it, uh, and I and I really thought long and hard about how we would do overtime. And in my mind, I felt that both teams need to possess the football, have a chance to score. And I and I also thought uh, that we didn't do. You know, I, I can see arguments for lining up at the twenty or the twenty-five, but to me, I, especially on a small field, and, and nobody really done that. Although that did come up in our discussions. Well, why don't we just give them ten-yard line and see who can score the first and four downs? You know, and I said, no, 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 no. Let's line up and, and, and like it's a fifth quarter. Let's kick the ball off. And the rule is and was uh, from the beginning, you get a possession. Now, if you handle the ball coming out of the end zone, you possess it, and you fumble it on the one yard line, you you gave up. That was your possession. I mean, we were, you know. So then it was it, the other team had the chance to score and beat you. And that's that's just the rule in the NFL. Although they got the field goal provision in there versus a score. Even so, though, it was a hell of a way to start, right? I mean, you could not have asked for, frankly, a better weekend. I mean, a, oh. bit, a close game yeah, the night before and an overtime game on national television, even though the confusion, you, you can't have not watched that game, and I saw the, only saw the clip, right, and not have seen the excitement come across your tube. 
Well, it was crazy because I'm uh, the the press area in the Rosemont Horizon was not up an elevator. It was up like five flights of stairs. And unfortunately, being a, a former track fan from the University of Iowa, I'm still I'm still in pretty good shape now. But I was really in good shape then. I sprinted up those stairs. And my worst fear was that they're going to be up there going, "What do we do? What do we do?" Nobody knows because I right away on the sideline, I heard I heard one of my one of the coaches who I want to say was. Uh, and it wasn't the one that was it helped put the, the game together, Ray Ock. So what, what happens now? What the heck? You know, going crazy. And, and a couple other people like, had no idea what was going to happen. And, and I had asked people to read through the rule book. We'd gone through the training camp, but, you know, that's like kind of, you know, in class, things go in one ear and out the other. So I, I thought, oh, my God, my national television, I've got to deal with this. I sprinted up there. And, I, and of course, Curse was up there going, what happens now? <laughs> is, there, is there overtime in the way? So I got up there, and I, as I remember, I explained it very quickly, and and, and away we went, and it worked out. So, uh, but it was it made for some humorous uh, uh, commentary, and and also some you know, things in the media about you should have seen the first game of arena football. It was wild. <laughs> well, and look, and, that, and that's pre- and that's press, right? And that's exactly what you needed, oh, yeah. favorably so. And yeah. so maybe you can just describe the rest of the of that season then. Uh, how did you feel about that season? And then after it was done with the first arena bowl with a, you know, obviously a, another sellout crowd, it looks like in Pittsburgh, um, you know, it seemed like it was uh, by all accounts pretty successful. What do you think you learned? What did you experience in that first season overall? Uh, and what did you learn? And, and how did this set you up in your mind for a full fledged season, the next season? Well, it, it did what it was supposed to do way beyond. I mean, I was absolutely ecstatic. I mean, at, at the end of the year overall, I mean, it was a lot of work. I had a very small staff, but they were loyal. I talk about the, you know, the, the dirty dozen in the trenches. You know, we were, I was at every game as well as my PR guy, Jeremiah uh, Enright, a couple other people worked for me. Uh, you know, Doug Buffon was on the road all the time with us. Uh, he was the director of football operations and oversight, and you know it really was a, a, a grind. But God, it was it was amazing because we always played a Friday Saturday night. So we had both. You know, we had the, the TV game was always Saturday night, and we played a Friday night. So we could we had enough staff to, to cover everything. So you know, and actually we we had a deal with United Airlines. It was a tremendous deal. You fly anywhere in the country for a hundred bucks. Uh, that was a quite a quite a deal. We had a great deal with Holiday Inns. Uh, we had a great deal with uh, major sp- lodging sponsor. We had a great deal with United Airlines, uh, as I said, and then also budget rent a car. And we needed those cars, those vans. So a lot of things fell into place the first year. We were very fortunate. People took a chance on us, and they were very happy. But we we came brought to them. Hardee's was our presenting sponsor fast food chain and they were growing into a more of a national chain and they were looking for some visibility and then we played for the Hardy's Cup which is I have to tell you the story quickly the Hardy's Cup we wrestled with what to do and I, I wanted to be innovative again and I, and I actually had a Hardy's uh, uh, soda cup sitting on my desk one day in my office and I thought there's the there's the answer let's make a really cool very modern looking Hardy's Cup Literally, uh, like a, a a big cup, but make it like twelve times bigger than it's supposed to be. I guess a great big, you know, soda cup with their logo on the side, and then engraved with you know Arena Bowl, you know, eighty seven because we used to use the American instead of the uh, 
the uh, Roman numeral stuff, I just thought it was easy for fans to know each year. I still believe that. I think that's one of the things we got away from later on, and I still re- regret that. I think it's a lot easier when you're trying to remember what Roman numeral was, was the Super Bowl 19, you know, 99 or 2005, when you can say, oh, that was 87. <laughs> but that's another story for another day. So we made this chrome, really cool-looking chrome cup about so it's almost three feet high on a base. And it was pretty neat looking uh, with the inscription plate and everything on it. And Denver wins the game, and Tim Markham says, Well, we get the trash can. <laughs> I, was, I could have killed him. He says it on the air. Wow, this looks like a trash can. That's what we get. <laughs> and, and he had already seen it, he knew what it was, but he just had to take. Markham and I had an interesting relationship. He always had to throw barbs at me. He was always mad uh, or, or or irritated that I had invented the game of arena football. I should have been some seasoned football coach like himself that came up with this great idea. The fact that I had never coached it down in football. I mean, I've been in football for a long time, but I never wanted to coach <laughs> more of the business side. Just drove him crazy. So when he could take his shots at me, he was. <laughs> that was one of them. But, uh, and he used to like to try to tell me that they used it for a trash can in his office, which he probably did, quite frankly. Uh, but that was the Hardy's Cup story. At the end of the year uh, was uh, was a relief to get through it, uh, but almost sad that it ended as quickly as it did. Almost wished we'd played more games and more teams. But I, when I look back on it, even then, I realized we'd done the right thing. We, we, we had something we could manage, we could control. It wasn't too unwieldy. And also, quite honestly, we I didn't want to risk more loss. I mean, if it didn't work well, uh, where was the money going to come from? I did not want to be in a situation like the old uh, World Football League or even some of the teams in the USFL or other leagues where they're halfway through the season they have no money. You know, they can't pay their bills. They can't they can't they can't pay their players. They can't house their players properly. And we got through all that. We did fine. We cash flowed it uh, through the first year. We actually cash flowed that first year and made it out in one piece, which in its own right was pretty amazing. I doubt there's ever been a football league or maybe even any other decent-sized sports league that's ever been able to say that with multiple teams. And, and again, it was a shorter season, but there was a reason for that. We did enough to get the product exposed on a multiple-week basis in major markets uh, with a lot of TV coverage, a lot of press coverage. Uh, the June 20, uh, July 20th article, major article, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, in uh, Sports Illustrated was just, you couldn't ask for more. I mean, I that's another moment I'll never forget because uh, – the fellow that wrote that article uh, uh, was a had a reputation of being not necessarily a poison pen artist, but pretty could be pretty tough. Uh, and when he showed up to do the story, I held my breath literally. Uh, and I had a nice chat with him before the game. He asked some questions, and you know, and, you know, about you know, so and so stuff we're talking about the, the history and this and that, how it came together. At halftime, I, he comes up to the press, little press lounge they had in the Rose by Horizon, and and he says to me. You know what? This is kind of like horse racing. I go, my, my heart skipped a couple of beats. I go, oh my God, what's he going to write? And he said, here's the deal. He said, you don't run a quarter horse against a thoroughbred. And I said, well, that's true because I, I, I've always enjoyed. I'm not into horse racing in a big way, but I've always enjoyed when I had a chance to go to a horse track because it's just the beauty of the animals and the power and the speed they run at. Uh, but I said. Yeah, because one's a lot faster than the other. One's built for distance, one for speed. And he said, exactly. And that's what's so great about this game. And he starts selling me on my own game. He said, I love the fact that these guys are playing both ways, mano-mano, man-on-man. We didn't allow zone defenses. Uh, he said, there are so many great things about this. This is a throwback to the, you know, the, the, the 
glory days of football back in the 20s, you know, the, the four horsemen and the blocks of granite. They started rattling off some of that stuff from, you know, Doc Blanchard and, you know, at the at Army and then Johnny Lou Jack and Notre Dame. He said, I love it. And it's a lot of it's in the article, some of that flavor. And I knew right there we were going to get a good article. Boy, we got a great one. And that lit the phones up. That built a lot more interest. And it's interesting. And, and we had a good article in USA Today and a good one in the New York Times. I remember the Chicago Tribune finally did a pretty good story. Some of that stuff, when it got out nationally through syndication or because it was a national publication, Pro Football Weekly Magazine, Howard Balzer, who broke the first story ever, as I might have mentioned earlier, uh, in Rockford, did a couple great stories. And it just started to build. Uh, but, there, but that Sports Illustrated was massive. You know, and it's that old song, you know, I want to get my picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Well, that's in essence what happened. I mean, we 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 hit a home run with that. And uh, that was probably one of the biggest things. I believe that was Paul Zimmerman who wrote that article. No? Paul Zimmerman, yeah, that was it. I, I was trying to think of the name. And, July well, 11, was, yeah, July 11th, yeah. 1988, which was uh, in the midst of your first full-fledged season. And, um, 1987. You know, 87? No, we had a story in 87. Oh, okay. Well, this is an 88 so I, article that I just saw, so there's probably one earlier than that, too. I'll have to look for that, too. The, the 87 article is what I'm talking about. It was just a, it was huge. Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't have bought that. And I had a good publicist. That was another thing I did that I was very fortunate to, to have happen. Because of a couple of guys I was working in, working with in, in uh, New York uh, that were uh, John Gagan, the fellow I mentioned uh, from the uh, – I uh, did a lot of the graphics, uh, you know, and art and, and, and marketing concept work with me and did the original drawings of what it would look like. Uh, and a couple other fellows, uh, Don Dixon. Uh, Don Dixon was with Marlboro Sports Marketing, which is one of, at that time, preeminent uh, sports marketing firms in the country. They were way ahead of their time, and they were very good at what they did. He was the one that got us set up with Hardy's, got the door open for me, and, and, and did, did a lot of things. I, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Both those guys should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but uh, suffice to say that uh, the, they, uh, uh, the, the connections they had, they got me to a publicist. Uh, by the name of Cohen, and the fellow did a lot of work with the major boxing uh, uh, stars, uh, and worked with Don King, worked with uh, uh, guys of that nature. But he was a very legitimate sports publicist, and he had a Rolodex. I mean, you would go in his office. His Rolodex was probably about a foot and a half wide, <laughs> in depth. I mean, it had so many cards in it, and his whole business was getting stories done. Uh, and, and it's kind of an old school thing. I don't think it happens like that anymore. I'm sure there's still some of it. But he was a guy that knew how to press the button, pick up the phone, and get to the right sports writer, persuade him to do a story, come out and cover something. And and that allowed to start getting a Zimmerman uh, uh, there. Uh, and also ESPN did some things along those lines to help too. So I, I'll, the stars aligned in many respects. It was a lot of hard work, but there was also people that believed in it enough to, uh, and took a chance on me and on this off-the-wall game you know, and said, "Hey, let's give a let's see what we can do with it." You know, uh, it all came together that first year. So at the end of the year, we felt very good about where we we're at. Now, again, uh, I'm getting a lot of calls from people who want to buy franchises, and I'm saying, "We don't do that." What do you mean you don't do that? That's how you do it. You know, I said, "No, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to sell management rights." to operate uh, a team in a market. And actually, it really wasn't even supposed to be that way. We morphed into that, which I regret now. The original plan was to be straight subsidiary-operated teams like the first year where they had their own coach, own manager. Uh, they were like being subsidiaries, uh, branch offices of IBM. 
uh, and they compete against each other, just like salesmen compete in each branch to sell the most IBM computers or printers or whatever. But these guys were competing on the field against each other, and the more they put one, the more they made. And it was it was a very strong concept that did work, and it worked well. I will tell you to this day, the best season of arena football was the first year in terms of the way it operated, because we did not have owners involved. And I know there's probably people out there that might hear this that cringe when I say that, but. We ran it like a business. We did not have a doctor in, you know, Topeka or a, a dentist in in Dallas or a, a ball bearing manufacturer in uh, Birmingham uh, that said, "No, this is how I'm going to do it." You know, uh, because the George House said it so well before Congress in the early '60s, uh, when there was some discussion about the antitrust of the NFL. And he said, you know, a league is only as good as its weakest league. And it is so absolutely true. It's it's like the anthem to what can go wrong with, with sports leagues. And, you know, it's a creeping crowd. If you get three or four bad owners, even one or two sometimes, they can ruin uh, an otherwise good league. And, and in essence, go back to the USFL. That's what happened. Go back to the World Football League. That's what happened. You could go to a lot of other leagues and other sports. And I did not want that to happen. And that's why I stuck by my guns. And that was the downside after the end of the first year was because a lot of guys said, I don't buy a franchise, I'm not going to get involved. And I, to which I said politely, well, then you don't see the value of what I'm trying to do. Uh, and they were gone. And I, and I, I probably had over 400 inquiries, inquiries about buying franchises. It was that big a deal. Uh, but in many cases, there are guys who are undercapitalized. They, they own two gas stations and, uh, in Wichita, and they thought they should put a football team there. And, you know, nothing against two gas stations in Wichita, but that's not, that's not what we were looking for. And I really wanted to bring capital in to operate the league uh, as a business. And it, it was extremely difficult to get anybody to take it seriously. Finally, we got down to a small group of about 10 to 12 guys that said they were willing to do that. But then they, they we got into a kind of a timing situation, and I was a young business person. I, I had, did not have that much experience at big-time negotiation. A lot of things that happened well going in through that first year uh, didn't go badly, but they didn't go the way they should have. And, and I probably could have used a little bit more senior mentoring in a few cases, somebody that could back me up. Because we got to the point uh, during the offseason uh, that we wanted to play with hopefully eight teams, a minimum of six. We ended up uh, with six that year. Didn't want more than eight. We lengthened the season a little bit, and we wanted to get into some decent-sized markets. But I ended up in a situation where collectively, not all of them, but a small group of them kind of conspired, which I didn't know at that time, to say they were going to walk away from it at the last minute uh, unless we would change to a franchise structure, which I absolutely said, no way, ain't going to happen. We won't play this year. I'll go out and find some other money or we won't play. I blinked. They blinked first on that, and I then they then agreed to a compromise, which was they would manage a team in the market where they were at as long as they could have a team in that market. And it turned out the markets were all – on paper made sense. They were reasonably decent. I mean, it was LA, it was, it was Chicago, it was New York. Uh, we were in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. It was kind of turned out to be a, a, a bad market. It didn't look like it on the surface, but in reality, it was a uh, really a suburb of Boston. And, and even though we've been sold pretty heavily by the mayor, the Chamber of Commerce, the guys who were going to have the team there, that this was a market that really wanted its own identity and its own sports teams. And ironically, it had a team in the early NFL called the Steamrollers, the Providence Steamrollers. And if one of the fellows involved with it was still alive in Asia. 93 years old, as I remember. His name was uh, uh, Pierce. Uh, 
what was Pierce's last name? Great guy. Loved the guy. He was so excited to see the steamrollers come. The team come to Providence. He wrote the NFL and said, please allow them to use the name steamrollers, which they did. So they played as a Providence steamrollers for one year. But the market was not what it appeared to be. I mean, the first night, this is a, this is a good example of sports marketing 101. I go up at halftime to do an interview. It was the first game of the year, and they insisted they were going to sell out their first game in the Providence uh, Civic Arena, I think they call it at that time. Uh, they were uh, One of the guys was a rock and roll promoter, very successful. But what he didn't understand was selling ACDC or KISS or some of those big acts at that time, they pre-sold. Uh, they, they're going to sell out the building because they were, they had already created the push, the, the mojo. They didn't understand what it took to grassroots market something like that. The first game they had maybe 7,500 in the building instead of 12,000, but which I was very disappointed because they insisted on being the opening game on ESPN. They made a huge deal about it. That was one of the, one of the deals for them. So we did it. I go up at halftime, not happy about that, and I'm standing there waiting to do the interview. Uh, and one of the cameramen had the ability on his monitor to be able to switch switch around to what was on television. And he's televising my arena football game, our arena football game, but, you know, my game. And yet every time he had a moment where there was a break, he would flip on to either the Bruins or the Celtics that were playing. <laughs> and I finally said to him, well, what do you think of arena football? I said, yeah, it's interesting, but, you know, so-and-so's playing tonight for the Celtics, and he hasn't been. He's been out for three days or three games or whatever, and he went out about now, you could tell, and I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Providence. I said, well, what do you think about having this team? Oh, it's nice, but, you know, they got to compete with the Celtics and the Bruins. And I'm thinking, why didn't I talk to guys like that? Because <laughs> you know? I do right away. One of the reasons we didn't have a sold-out house that night was because like, one team was on the road, the other was home. And I think the Red Sox had just started their season, too, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this, this market is still wired to Boston. And uh, it was a wake-up call for me, but it was one that we had to deal with. And they didn't do real well up there. They didn't have a real good team that year either. That didn't help. But uh, although one interesting thing did happen that game that I'd never seen before in the first season, we had a quarterback to throw the ball so hard. He actually threw the ball on a perfect angle, a perfect plane. He It hit the crisscross uh, framing, the Roan Tower, if you want to call it, uh, uh, bars on the on the nets, the frames, and it drove it right into the frame. The ball they had to get a ladder and go out and get the ball, pry it out of there. <laughs> what's the ruling? What's the ruling for that? Well, it, it was an incomplete pass, and uh, uh, that's how the ruling was. And we we didn't have a rule for that, quite frankly. And I was there. And I said, well, what I said to the crew chief, who was a pretty – we had good officials in arena football. We never started out high school guys. We all started out with guys that come out of major college. We were fortunate with that uh, from the get-go. And, and they said, well, we've never seen this before. And I said, obviously nobody has. What do you think? I think it's – I said, I think it's a, you know, it's a ground rule impediment. It's just a it's – a, it's an incomplete pass. And Actually, the truth be told, as we talked talk about it, if you threw the ball and it hit the frame and it bounced out of bounds, it was an incomplete pass anyway. So what's the difference if it gets stuck in the frame or bounces off? And now the ball, it has always been playable off the frame or off the nets on a throw. Uh, in fact, the first year, one of the, I don't remember who it was, but we had that happen in a game and a kid caught a pass for a touchdown. And somebody said, boy, that's like a Hail Mary. And one of the sports writers said, no, that's a Hail Foster. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so that's always been in the game. Now the rule, other rule that's gone back and forth, and I mentioned Tim Markham, the winningest coach in the history of arena football, has unfortunately passed away several years ago. But Markham hated the wall. Markham Markham at training camp, 
the first time I ever met Tim Markham in, in, at uh, at uh, what, uh, what was it a, a school of college? We were old school out in the in Chicago or Chicago country, Wheaton College. Uh, we built a set of nets that were the real nets, and we hung them from telephone poles. And they replaced. We only had four teams, remember, so we could have two practice fields, and the nets were at one in between those two fields. So if you visualize this, you could go down and kick at the nets uh, from either team because they were right in the middle of the two at the end of the two practice fields. Well, I, we were really struggling to figure out how we were going to get that done. Actually, my father was very innovative in his own right. I got a little letter from him. Said, "Hey, why don't we just get some telephone poles, put them in the ground, get a really taut wire up there, brace those telephone poles a little bit, and, and those nets should hang there." And the telephone poles were, were padded and far enough, far enough out of the way that it worked. Uh, and, but Markham was down on the field. I, I came out to training camp. It was the night before I was supposed to start, and I see this guy standing down there on the field with a cowboy hat on. And he was from Texas, and uh, I don't know who the heck that is. So I walked down there, and he doesn't know who I am. Uh, and he knows who I was, but he hadn't met me yet. And he's looking at these nets. He says, "This is the blankety blank craziest thing I've ever seen." I said, "Well, why do you say that?" He says, "Well, we're sure as the heck not going to let any footballs bounce back in the playoff. These things. Whoever thought this up is a nut job." <laughs> he was talking to me, <laughs> and I said, "Well." Nice to meet you. I'm Jim Foster. I'm the guy that invented this. Oh, so you're the guy, you know? So, well, we can't do this. He says, you know, that's nice. It catches the balls. I said, Tim, if you're going to coach here, I'm going to tell you right now, that's the way it's going to be. If you don't like that, we'll find another coach. I was really mad, to tell you the truth, that he would even have the audacity to come in, you know, and he was hired by Miles Davis. And I, and I, call, I, I, was, I, I, I was playing how I said it, but I said, this is really the way it's going to be played. He said, well, I don't like that. Well, we ended the conversation. And I called Miles up. I said, you know what, Miles, who was our director of football? He says, and did a great job. I said, Miles, you got to get this straightened out real quick because I'm not going to fight everybody on every rule every day that they don't like. They either buy into this or they go away. And, and so Markham didn't like that rule when he found out the ball was live and they hit the sideline barriers and bounced it back into play. Uh, he fought that, and actually, about the fifth year of the league, the first year, I, sixth year, the first year I wasn't commissioner, I believe it was, he got the role changed when I wasn't there <laughs> on a full-time basis. To you know, I was consulting as I said on my own team, but and then it eventually went back, and it's, it is a rule now. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly, entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. 
Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. That's interesting because uh, you actually had this whole thing patented in in late in 1987, right? So, so this is this is more than just you defending, I guess, the rules of the game that you came up with. You you actually have a patent in process at that time. That not granted until 1990, but still, he was a patent applied for. Yes, very much so, and 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 it's very astute of you to bring that up because that became a big saving point for our game and a protection. And in fact, at one point in a conversation back with the NFL, uh, I think it was Paul Taggart who said to me, uh, he said, boy, you literally have a sports monopoly. I mean, we would love to have that. Because for 19 years, nobody could play that game legally. They still can't use the trademarks. Uh, but we had total protection of that game system. The patent was patents can be issued on the, on mechanisms uh, and related rules in the terms of sports that might apply to it. This is incidentally, I, I have been told for many years, and I, I believe it to be true. This is the only pro, this is the only sports team sports product that's ever been patented that's been played, actually played with, or you know, used. Uh, it never happened before, so it was extremely unique. And the patent is on the actual game. It's called the, the Arena Football Game System. And what that is is those rebound nets, that whole apparatus that hangs, you know, from the rafters of an arena, uh, and the sideline barrier system. Now, the sideline barrier system came about because realistically, and I realized it the first day in Rockford during the testing way back in 19, December of 85, that you're going to have to have something to protect the fans from the players going up in the stands. Uh, you can't play without those walls. Uh, and, and, and the players need some protection from getting hurt up in the stands. Not that the fans going to pummel them, but they're, you know, they're just, you know, tripping over the first row of seats or whatever. So that's why we kept the hockey walls in place. But we also began to realize that the impact of players going into the wall, and we did some testing on it, was going to be so much bigger than it was for hockey players on skates that we started testing the foam and uh, came up with a foam padding system that, that's still used to this day. Now, in the early years, uh, and it was economical to do it this way, and probably still could be done this way, but again, one of the commissioners that followed me, everything had to you know, be top dollar. And I understood what he was doing, but it was a lot of extra money. We were able to buy a powder blue-colored a foam billet, as they call it. It was a, it was, they came in four, a four by eight sheets. I wanted a four foot high wall. Hockey's actually 10 inches shorter, as I remember. Uh, so in most cases, a player wasn't going to go over the wall. It still happened in some cases, particularly guys catching a pass and getting driven out by a guy trying to push him out or tackle him out. But the, the pad was just blue and we put the advertising signage over it. Uh, and it was pretty simple. Uh, it, it was three inches of high density poly foam. And we did some absorption, absorption tests on it. And what we realized was that uh, as opposed to having a hard wall, which is obviously like a hard helmet, some of the CTE stuff you're dealing with right now, uh, that, that, that foam pad was thick enough. And it actually was made so that it was denser at the back than it was at the front of it. And so when you went into it, it was kind of a soft impact. And then it, 
it, it got harder as you went closer to the, you know, penetrating back to the board behind it. And, and in most cases, most arenas had hockey dashers, and that's what they attached to with Velcro. Uh, and it worked, but it was all part of the game system. Now, what what happened was that when the indoor football league started, which is still out there many years later, uh, as a, a, a high-level semi-pro operation, uh, when that started, they thought they were going to call it arena football, which they could, and they found that out pretty quickly. You can't use those trademarks. And they also thought they were going to hang the nets and uh, use our rules. And we had to take them to court and say, no, you can't do that. You've got to get a cease and desist. And once they realized, it, it was obviously an innocent mistake. They they just didn't really understand. They hadn't done their homework. It was a young guy doing it. Uh, he'd been turned down from an arena football franchise in a smaller market, and he wanted to play so bad, he started his own league. And i got to give him a lot of credit for what he did. Uh, he, and he went to smaller markets, the Sioux Cities of the World, and and uh, Green Bay's and places like that. And, and, and a number of those teams are still playing all these years later, but they, they've never used the nets, and they can't use the wall as a live part of the game because if, if the rule pertains to the apparatus, then you can't use it. So what's actually patented uh, is the, the apparatus itself and any rules pertinent uh, to uh, working with that apparatus to make it work in that game situation. And uh, it's been great. So, so walk me through that. So, but the patent, if I'm not mistaken, expired in 2007. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so um, it also seems to be around the time where you kind of started a kind of segue away from the league. I don't want to blitz through, no pun, uh, the the years intervening. We can get back to some of that, but um, is there a coincidence there, and or what is what is doable and not doable by competitors now that that. Uh, ostensibly, that patent is essentially expired. Well, they can't use any trademarks, but actually, they wanted to. Uh, they could. Uh, they could put the nets up if they wanted. But there's a lot of expense involved, and the other leagues are operating in a lot less for a lot less money. I mean, the the upside of arena football was it was a it, and it continues to be. It's a very unique product. The downside is that you're trying to run on a shoestring. Uh, you you know, it's a lot cheaper just to throw up some plastic goalposts. Uh, ABS plastic goalposts, which is in essence what they do, and hanging from the rafters. That's that's like a dollar ninety-five versus a thousand dollars. You know, I mean, a comparative basis in terms of the cost. Uh, and uh, you know, they and they just chosen to not do that, and uh, and then they don't obviously use the rule where the walls are wide uh, because that's that, that that's all part of what we did, and they've kind of just stayed away with it. Although technically, they could do that at this point. It's, it's actually been interesting to me that none of the leagues have, made, uh, have, have tried to replicate uh, the arena football Mets. And I think part of it is, and I actually know some of the people in a lot of those leagues and have been to a few of their games, and there's some former arena guys that have been involved, so that's been part of the reason I, I'm not going to end friendships over the fact guys are trying to make a living. But uh, it's, I don't think it's as good a game, and most people will tell you that's a different game. The rules are very different, too. But uh, but the reality of it is that uh, the it's much more simplistic and a lot less expensive to to not do what we what we did to make the game unique. And I think that in some respects, putting the nets up, even if they wanted to spend the money, a set of, a set of nets is you know upwards of twenty thousand dollars. And then you have to hang them every game, and you have to store them, and, and there's a lot more that goes into it. I mean, it's it's not as bad as having to make ice to play hockey, but it, it is a, it's a major expense, uh, you know, uh, if you're running seven eight thousand people a game, or even less than that. 
So it's a lot cheaper just to hang a little goalpost up uh, and 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 go that route, and then a ball goes in the stands, uh, you try to get it back, you know, or you know. And, and, although most of the semi-pro level or lower level leagues play with a rubber football, we were playing with the same ball the National Football League used uh, and continues to use. That was our ball, except we went to the two-tone leather, which was a combination of the USFL leather and the NFL leather. And we, I, I wanted a different ball, but I didn't want a red, white, and blue stupid-looking carnival ball. I wanted something that was classy. Uh, you know, understated but different. And uh, it just so happened I was in Dennis Griffith's office one day, and he had a USFL ball and an NFL ball sitting on his tees side by side. Well, those are the two leagues that I trained in, so to speak, or came out of before I did my own league. And I said, God, can we take the leather from the two leagues I've been involved with and use it as alternating panels? And he said, God, that's a great idea. Why not? And I did. So, uh, and then eventually, uh, there was a year that came along where they they did not were not able to get enough of the of the tan leather in the USFL color, so we went to a one tone ball, and then uh, the the kind of lifetime commissioner just decided that looked better that way to just have the same ball that was the same color as the NFL, and I I just didn't say anything. So well, so <laughs> when know, you, we, we yeah. get into uh, so you know as the, as the years sort of roll on, right? I mean, you had a couple of. Uh... You know, it, it's clear it, it, this this took off in a number of different cities. Like, for example, Detroit, right? The Detroit Drive, arguably the closest thing that the AFL ever had to a, a dynasty, right? Where you had, I guess they were yeah, cha- champions I, for like four years in a, uh, almost in a row there at Joe Louis Arena. Uh, the Rattlers of Arizona, Tampa Bay Storm were quite successful. The Orlando Predators, I mean. Orlando, yeah. Those would be probably the ones that were the strongest overall. Uh, you know, my barnstorm teams are good, but they weren't at that level. We were we were always in the hunt, but we we you know played two championships. But but there then there were some others at that at, the, at that close to that level. But the, truly, I mean, the teams that Tim Markham coached were outstanding teams, and I will not take anything away from Tim's coaching ability. Some of the other things that went on were probably not my favorite topics, but but in terms of coaching. Uh, and, and finding talent, he was very, very good at it. And he was outstanding. And there were some other coaches that were. Danny White did a great job in Arizona. Danny was an outstanding coach. And Danny, Danny played by the book completely. He was straight up, uh, great guy to work with. There were a lot of things that went on, you know, politically with the league, and they're going to have that, particularly when we went to franchising after the 1990 season, because in '88 we played with uh, the modified uh, single entity concept. Had a lot of problems with it. We had some guys that. They wanted to try to force a, uh, a deal to uh, actually withheld salaries a couple times, and uh, I threatened to shut the league down. I had to blink. They had to blink again, you know. And 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 what happened was one guy in that group stood his ground and backed me up, and it was Mike Hillich in Detroit. Not only did Mike and his staff put together a great organization up there, and and and, and Markham. Did, and now Markham wasn't the coach there for one year. He uh, another uh, Perry Moss, who was a great coach of Orlando, actually came in and coached for a year, uh, and uh, and did a good job there and won a championship actually. But uh, when Mike Elch got involved, he came to the championship game the first year in Pittsburgh. It was held in Pittsburgh, and he and, he, and I didn't know he was there. Uh, he had contacted. Uh, the Bartolos who owned the hockey team and ran the building and asked if he could come to the game. And they made arrangements to put him up a suite. He didn't really want anybody to know he was there, which was fine. Flew in and flew, in and flew out. 
But I got a call from him the following Monday. He said, this is uh, Mike Illich from Little Caesars Pizza and the Detroit Red Wings. I, I, I thought at first, yeah, right. But it was him. And uh, he said, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to get involved in your league. I'd like to talk to you more about what you're doing, how you're doing it. I understand you don't really want to sell franchises. Tell me about that. And he was very patient, and we walked through a lot of things. He said, you know what? I think that's a great idea. And in the National Hockey League, we have problems all the time with owners. He said, I admire what you're doing. It's brilliant. He said, I'll be glad to support you on that. Uh, now, and he made a commitment literally days after the 87 season ended. So I already had a new franchise in my, not my pocket, but on the table. I was very excited. And he liked the single entity concept. But as we went forward, as I explained, you know, we had a lot of problems with people out. They wanted a franchise or they want to be involved, period. Uh, and they went away. And in many cases, they didn't have the capital anyway. But So it really wasn't a big loss. But the group we ended up with, we went into it. Uh, and what I didn't know was that the several of them were, were already planning. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm a young guy. I'm from Iowa. You know, it's like I don't have an MBA in business. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Yale. I went to Iowa. So I'm very proud of. But, you know, we'll, we'll take this guy out. You know, they had good lawyers. They, they were wealthy, wealthy people. Uh, let's just let's just take this. Because all they wanted to do was just make it into a franchise league. They were happy with the game for the most part, but they just wanted to run their own franchises. They didn't want to have, they don't like the idea of, uh, of the single entity, period. And uh, because why? Because, because these would be better investments for which to then further sell down the road. Would that was that the model that they were envisioning versus uh, enriching, no, so to was, speak, a single entity? No, it was just because they want to control. These are these are you know, and, and I understood it from their perspective in a sense. These are guys that built their own businesses, and and they did it the way they wanted to. And, and I I had a couple I had a couple go rounds of these guys or arguments or whatever. Uh, you know, saying, look, you know, why don't you let me come in and run your, uh, you know, run your, uh, uh, merchandising business? Well, what do you know about it? I said, well, what do you know about football? Well, I played in high school or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that story so many times, you know, I, well, I played in college or I'm a big fan or I watch the NFL. Or, it, that's great. That's why you like football, but you don't, you know, if you're a doctor, you know, you're going to let me come in and go into your operating room. And a heart surgeon involved. You gonna let me come in and help you do heart surgery? Well, absolutely not. Well, I, this is not heart surgery, but at the same time, there's a lot to, there's a lot of things you need to understand about this business, how it works, and and that's I can I, I swear to God, before I die, I'm gonna write a book about the woes of franchising in America because it's this is one of the only countries that really works that way. You know, you go to Europe, a lot of teams are owned by corporations. Uh, they're run by they're run like a business, and the NFL incidentally and the major league teams are run that way now. They've evolved to that point, though. They've evolved a long ways from George Halas and uh, Curly Lambeau and a bunch of guys sitting on running boards in an uh, auto dealership in, in Canton, Ohio, in 1920, and you know, going, well, let's see, let's get this, you know, spend what $1,000 a piece or whatever it was, and we'll form a league. You know, it, it's, I mean, the the the. Uh, the annual annals of the annals of uh, sports history, team sports history, are littered with literally hundreds of corpses of franchises that were poorly run, undercapitalized, and, and the result in many cases the leagues went down with them. Uh, and even in some of the established leagues, I mean, there's been a lot of a lot of misfires. And when you go back and look at the bulk of it, you're going to see that they were franchises that were not very well run in many cases. There were some cases where they're pretty well run, but maybe they didn't have enough capital, or they were well capitalized, but they're in the wrong market. Uh, you know, I taught at the University of Iowa for a couple of years, and I and I really wanted to kind of condense down some of the things I learned in the business. And I came up with uh, a, a, a a concept called the the three no's. 
uh, and 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 what and I put it up on the on a wrote up on a chalkboard or writer board one night. And I said this is this is the crucible. Or these are this is like the the, the holy grail commandments of, of a sports team sports business. Really, in some respects, even special events. Know the market, know the sport, and know the finances. And I spelled it with a K and then a big N O W, and 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 there was no capitalized. And so there's a reason for this, because so many people buy sports franchises for all the wrong reasons, and they don't do the homework. I live in this town. I want to put a football team in there or a minor league baseball team or whatever it is. Uh, and because I'm here and I'm successful and everybody knows me, uh, it's going to be a hit. It's going to be successful. It's going to be the greatest thing. It's going to be unbelievable. You're going to love it. And I'm going to sell out every game. I've heard that, that little clip so many times in my life. And it doesn't happen that way most of the time because they don't understand the market. It may not be the right market. There may be too much competition. The dollar, the, 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 the economy may not be right. The types of people in the market may not be right for that particular sport, which takes you to know the sport. You need to understand what that sport is and what it represents in that community and how they're going to, how they're going to perceive it. And then after you do those two things, you better understand where the financials work. Are there enough sponsors in that market? You know, it's one of the interesting things that I always hear in this business. Oh, you got to be able to fill this arena up in a heartbeat. Yeah, but guess what? This is a market that is small enough that there's hardly any major retailers anymore or major companies in that market that are going to buy sponsorships. Because you know what? If you're at the minor league level today, I don't care where you're at, unless you're in a really big uh, market as a minor league team, you might get lucky. Kohl's, Walmart, Kmart. Uh, all these chain stores, they're not gonna, they're not gonna buy a sponsorship. They're not gonna spend, spend money. They're gonna spend it on a major league team, in most cases. I mean, once in a while you get lucky, maybe get something. Uh, I remember one of my teams, guys went out to talk to Walmart, uh, and, and they said, well, you know, if you want, you can set up a card table on Saturday across from the Girl Scouts that are selling cookies, and you can start try to sell season tickets. <laughs> that would help you. <laughs> but you know. Yeah. So, well, okay. So So, at what, at what point though? Okay. So, you know, what point did you start to kind of wonder what you had birthed here and, and if it was sort of slipping away from you perhaps because of some of this ownership uh, uh, divergence of thought, shall we say, Uh, you know, because it's clear that, you know, you, you birthed this baby, you, this is largely a a labor of love. This is something that, uh, you know, that you've, uh, that you centrally had the vision for and control and got patents for and all that. And yet it seems that, you know, given some uh, some significant success in a number of different markets and a product that certainly uh, was appealing uh, to many people in the stands and, and certainly uh, played well on television, it seems that, uh, you know, it did have its uh, its moments. And, and clearly in the in the 90s, you know, it started to kind of maybe started to uh, peter a little bit. And certainly 2000s kind of even went sideways. No. Yeah, the the, the, the problem Really, what I've been talking about, and it's what you're addressing. We're going to come back. We're coming back around. The two points are going to meet in the middle. It's quality control. It's it's having a a, a quality product that has some consistency. When you go to an arena football game, I don't care what market's in, it's going to be done a particular way. You know, the National Football League's been outstanding in that area, and I learned some of this while I was with the NFL. Standard uniforms, standard uh, standard production uh, uh, statics, uh, status uh, or procedures, 
and, and the NBA is that way. They're all that way. The major leagues, and it's filtered down to the good minor leagues now too. I mean, it, you you got to you got to take care of the fan. They're number one. You have to put on a quality product, and you got to have good statistics keeping. You got to keep the fans informed. I mean, you go right on down the list A to Z. There's a lot, an extensive laundry list. You do it the right way. And if you play, if you put a competent product on the field and you manage it properly, it's properly funded, you have a pretty good chance of being having some success. Paying your bills and getting put one foot in front of the other and growing the product and growing the league. We had in some markets, and you already mentioned some of them. We had some markets that were the Colangelo's did a great job there. Jerry Colangelo is a brilliant marketer. Did a great job. His son did a great job. Uh, at Detroit, Olympia Arenas, the guys there, Gary Vito, unfortunately passed away as in the Hall of Fame. Some of the guys that worked for him, they did a great job. I mean, uh, Orlando uh, was, although it went through several different ownership uh, uh, variations, the consistency of the, of the team and the way it was marketed was pretty good. And a lot of that was because of Perry Moss. Perry wasn't the marketing guy, but Perry put a quality product on the field year after year. And it was the right market. For, and you talk about market, right market at the right time. Orlando was a boom market that was growing. It had only a, a major league basketball team. And they didn't have football in the area. It's a great football state. A lot of young people were moving into Orlando looking for something to do. A lot of them work in the entertainment business, there, the hospitality business, Disney World, all that business. And they were and they were young, and they got a little money in their pocket, and it was a it was a price a price point product that they could afford to go to. They bonded there. They had a lot of fun with it. You could see it happen. Tampa, not, a little different situation, but pretty much the same thing. A lot of people were moving into Tampa. You know, they came from New York. They came from Ohio. They came from wherever. And, and you know, and at the time we got there, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers actually weren't a very good team, and there's no major college football team in that market. Uh, there was no major college football team at that time in Orlando, incidentally. Now Central Florida has grown into a major program, but they, they were Division Two at that time. They were drawing a couple thousand a game probably. So there was a niche to be filled. There was a place for the product. There was a fit with the right type of fan base potential fan base and that's why they worked and but you get that consistent level of, of operation in the right market and the teams were relatively well funded for the most part there was never an issue with arizona i mean they they were going to write their checks and pay their bills on time all the time uh, orlando had pretty good pretty decent ownership in terms of funding there were some things that went on sometimes you know maybe that they, they didn't agree with everything but i mean they weren't lockstep necessarily but they they did a good job the franchise that you that you mentioned the ones that were most successful were the ones that did, did things the right way and that that when you start to analyze what went wrong with arena football there were a couple things we had franchises that never should have happened i was a commissioner when we put the first team in Columbus, Ohio, the first incarnation in Columbus. It never should have happened. I didn't want to do it, but the owner said to me, take the expansion money. We need it to prop up our teams, which are losing money. Now, that wasn't the case of Detroit, incidentally. They were doing just fine, but some of the other franchises were struggling, and they weren't very well run, quite honestly. So they that's, that's one of the curses in franchise sports, just not in the history of arena football. You sell franchises, the teams divide up the money. 
that's 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 their 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 uh, food stamps to get to the next year. That's their <laughs> that's their their grant aid, you know, so they can keep going because they're not doing it on their own, and that's a real problem. So what do you? It's a, it's the creeping crud you get every year. Let's sell some expansion franchises. We don't care where they're at. We don't care who owns it. Oh well, we hope he can write a check and and pay, pay his bills. But what we really want is that expansion money. Uh, and, and that got to be a real sore spot with me, uh, quite frankly. We were expanding in the markets we shouldn't have been in. It was a wrong market. They weren't capitalized properly. Uh, there were some horror stories. And it's not just in our league that that's happened. It's happened at hockey. It's happened. Now I'm talking primarily at the minor league level. But arena football hurt itself, hurt, hurt its potential because of mismanagement like that, because of misdirection, not keeping an eye on the ball, not getting good owners, even as a franchise league, not getting high-quality owners that understood what they were getting into, had the money to do it the right way, and were willing to work uh, with the league. We had owners that came in from the get-go that were props. I mean, they just didn't want to do it. They wanted to do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. And you can't run a league that way. It's that simple. And, and we're not the only league that had that happen, but most of those other leagues are out of business. I will tell you, arena football after 30 years is still around because it's a great product. And it's demonstrated that over and over again. I've said it in several interviews. It's been shot in the head, hit with a crowbar, it's been pummeled so many times, but it keeps going uh, and, because it's a great product, and there's always people that want to see it and watch it. Now, the problem is that that has gone up and down in some respects. It, you know, right now, the television coverage is much smaller than it used to be. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's not getting the recognition because it's down to a handful of teams all of them east of the Mississippi River, all of them in the eastern time zone, uh, and, and it, it's not what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. How do you think it, com- uh, how, do you, not- how do you think it comes back? I mean, how do you think it, it gets to – I mean, you know, you look at um, – I think back to the 20, 2003, 2006 uh, seasons, NBC had uh, national uh, Sunday games of the week and multiple uh, coverage, and it was almost like covering the NFL. It was – it seemed to be the sort of the pinnacle. Um, and you're right. The product is is – it's phenomenal. It's 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 a hell of an entertaining uh, uh, thing to see in the stands. It's it's a uh, it, it like I said before, it plays well on television. Um, it's hard to believe that there's only five or six teams now in the sort of I guess reconstituted league. What do you think the path to it regaining some of that uh, more national stature and uh, and and uh, and vigor again is it on its way, or do you think there's some things that have to happen for that to happen, or, or frankly, have has the sports landscape changed since the, the '90s and the 2000s? Given you know media ex, uh, explosion and, and all kinds of other competitive uh, threats and challenges. Well, the, the landscape is much more competitive. There are so many things you can do with your entertainment dollar now. I mean, and I and I've preached that for a long time. I certainly would bring that up as a major part of my discussion and teaching the sports management marketing programs that I taught at Iowa. You, you, not everybody's fixated on what you're doing. You're you're trying to find the pie has got a lot smaller. I mean, your piece of the pie is not as big as it used to be. I will also say this. The major leagues have gotten bigger and stronger. Major college football and basketball has become bigger and stronger. They they are dominant. They're much more dominant than they were 20, 30 years ago. Particularly college sports is really, uh, you know, you look at where they're at now and where they were. I can tell you stories of 30 years ago when, when most of the college programs 
didn't even want to think about having to do sponsorships. Why would we need to do that? We sell tickets, we put ads in the game program, and we pop popcorn. I mean, I literally was told that by uh, uh, college administrators back then. Now, there were some that were a little ahead of the curve then, but really, honestly, when we started arena football, most of the college programs were not in that mindset yet. And, and it was because they, the, 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 the arms war and the cost of facilities, the cost of coaches, the cost of operating major college football and basketball programs hadn't really shot up like it has now. I mean, now it's they're looking for every diamond or every manhole cover they can find, just like the, you know everybody else is. Uh, and it's very competitive. And, that, and that's the other thing. I think because of television, uh, and there's so many media social, so many social media pro formats now, pro uh, platforms that you can deliver your product from. Uh, that's a that's a look what's going on in the NFL. I mean, you can watch the entire season on your on your uh, iPad if you want. You don't need a television. You can watch it on your computer. You know, I mean, uh, it, all the leagues are getting that way. The major leagues, even probably some of the better minor leagues, are moving that direction. But the point is that television is is still that major league television, major network television is is not a thing of the past yet. It's still a very critical driver from a credibility and a visibility standpoint. The other the other platforms and the streaming and all that filter down from that. I mean, they come down as kind of a, a lines drawn off a corporate chart. You've you got to have all of it now, but it's still driven by, at this point, broadcast television or, or cable TV, obviously ESPN and Fox Sports and that, things of that nature. So the, the the complication comes in if you're the arena football league. Where do you fit in? Uh, again, the arena football leagues have the good fortune to carry national television, even up to the point now where they've been down to five teams, which is unbelievably operated with five teams. I, although we ran a year, one year in 1989 when we toured the country to keep the product alive, which was amazing. We didn't even talk about that. That was the toughest of all things we did, and probably the thing I'm most proud of other than getting the league off the ground was surviving after we had to walk away with the help of Mike Yelich and his support from guys who were trying to steal the league and and, and, and would have taken it to oblivion. I have no, it wouldn't have lasted two or three years if they got their hands on it, turned it into a franchise league. But uh, that aside, uh, the situation now is that, yeah, they are in a rebuilding building mode because they're a very much a, a regional, very not visible league at this point in time. The only people who really know it's out there, and I hear this all the time from people, uh, is arena football even playing anymore? Uh, it, or what happened to it? You know, I mean, it, it's a it's a problem. I mean, they've, they've fallen off a national radar screen. And, and the balance in all this is, it's complicated, and we saw this as we went along. It was great having that game of the week on ESPN or even multiple games. And you talked about NBC. NBC was a bit of a mirage. And I, and I got to tell you, it was one of the most eye-opening experiences for me. I was excited as anybody for two reasons. I actually had a contract that very few people know about before I did the deal with ESPN to televise arena football on NBC. I signed a contract in uh, February or March of 1982 with NBC after two meetings I also had a deal on the table, which I should have taken with Fox Television when they first got into sports, which I got talked out of by those same guys that almost torpedoed the league uh, in 1988. Because they didn't want me to do the deal with Fox, but quite frankly, I wouldn't have needed them. I would have had so much money coming from Fox that I wouldn't have had to bring them in. But that's another story for another day. And, I, and if I had a little bit more business wisdom at the time, I, I would have locked myself in a room and said, which way do I go? And I would have said, I don't need these guys. I've got Fox Television. Uh, but suffice to say that the 
the the issue we got into with something like M- with NBC in particular was that it was so big, and they're such a major broadcaster. Now, just ride with me for a minute. They broadcast on a nationwide basis to an extremely diverse audience. And look at their schedule, their day part and evening schedule, primetime schedule, all the different types of programs they put on. It's like the old Ed Sullivan show. We got a tap dancer, we got a we got a puppeteer, we've got a couple singers, we got the Beatles, we we got a little bit of everything for everybody. And and those shows aren't even don't really even exist anymore. Those variety shows. That in essence is really still what the major networks are. Yeah, they do sports, but when they do the NFL or they do the NBA or the NHL, those are major established leagues. Everybody knows what they are, and and, and there's a there's a strong audience for it. Monday Night Football proved that many years ago on ABC. I think this is like the 50th anniversary this year of uh, or 40th anniversary. I take that back of uh, Monday Night Football coming up, I believe, or something in that area. Now you take a sport like arena football. We get on NBC, and it was it was good. We got a lot of exposure, but there were many, many a high percentage of people watching NBC could care less, and they were never going to care about it they, they, because they weren't sports fans, or they were totally wed to baseball, or they were totally wed to uh, some other sport. They loved to watch golf, you know, on the golf channel, whatever it would be. And the problem that made it even more difficult for us was that NBC put the games on the air and showed them. And they ran some promotional spots. They were okay with that. They did a decent job. But there was no support or collar programming during the week talking about arena football. That was a problem on ESPN in the early years, quite frankly, too. And off and on during the entire time we've been on ESPN. You know, we had to beg them. Uh, the first year when we started, it wasn't too bad. But then when Bill Grimes, who was the president, uh, left to go to Telemundo, Bill was the champion that signed the deal with me and was such a visionary to, to give it a chance. The fellow that followed wasn't as in love with it. And part of it was because he didn't find it. He was a programming guy. Uh, it was given to him by Bill Grimes. And, you know, sometimes there's politics or that type of thing. They wouldn't even run our scores on Sports on, on sports Center for a while, on the ticker. I mean, here we are playing on ESPN. And if you didn't see the game, you had no idea what it was. And the same thing happened on NBC, but at a much higher platform. We had a situation where here we're on the, I mean, we hit the, I mean, this was Halcyon. You're on NBC. And for me, it was kind of cool because I'd signed that as a contract. And when, and when we went, when I did the, put the lead together, incidentally, NBC, I went back to them, told them what I was going to do. And they said, you know, we're going to take a pass right now. I had gone to them actually just to digress for a second, when the USFL started up and said, you know, this league plans to play off-season football just like I envisioned. I I honestly don't see a window for arena football to start in the next couple of years with the USFL starting. They agreed with me. They had looked at the USFL and passed on it, but they said, you're right. Uh, let's just table this. I had a contract originally that gave me four years, of the third or four-year window to put together a test game. Same thinking I started with way back then, uh, and, it, and they were going to run it on, a, on their Saturday afternoon sports anthology program. They're going to promote it and get publicity on it. Hey, watch this new kind of football on Saturday afternoon, whatever, March 10th, and, 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 and they were going to get feedback on it. And if it went well enough, they were going to work with me to develop the league. Uh, but obviously that never happened. When So when they rolled around years later, it was because of a, a very, very good uh, TV consultant we had. Uh, they did a great job of, of promoting our product, and, and, and he did it for years. 
and he was a great help to us, but uh, an, an advocate for us. But the reality of it was we would show up on TV and then disappear for another week. And other than a few promotional spots, there was nothing on NBC talking. There was no pregame show. There was no weekly wrap-up show. There was nothing. It was just a game. And, and so it was some people will watch it and say, wow, this is pretty cool, but why don't I hear more about it? Why isn't there a lot of press on it? You know, that's, that's, that, that, I'm going to step back another point here, this, but this is very critical when you, when you assess what's going on in football. The sports that are the most popular are the ones that get the most media when you get right down to it. There's stuff in the paper every day during baseball season. Baseball was a very, very difficult subject for us to deal with or a topic or, or, or competitor, let's use that term, simply because baseball has been around for so long. It's got so much history. Is it the most exciting game in the world? Well, if you're a baseball fan, is. there's a lot of people that don't really like baseball that well. They've lost numbers. They get numbers back. Certainly when the Cubs made a run a year ago, that brought a lot of people out of the woods for many reasons. They probably hadn't had much interest in baseball for a long time. But the fact that this team in that series in 100 years created a great story. But, but the issue is, is that when we were playing in the summer months, we knew we were going to get the fan that wasn't a baseball fan. And that's what we got. Our research showed that then. We're showing you that now. But at the same time, the, the major media didn't care about that. If they had a baseball team in their market. They were going to be on the front page. They're going to lead the sports cast. So here you are arena football. You're drawing 9, 10, 12,000 people in the arena. You're doing a pretty good job. you got a pretty good team. Oh, and the arena football team won tonight over uh, our team beat Tampa tonight. Nice game. You know, maybe uh, 10 seconds a clip, you know, you're lucky in a major market. It, it, because baseball was so much more important. And, and, and that in itself became an issue with NBC because even though we were getting this major league showcase opportunity with the product itself, there was nothing to support it. There was nothing to support it. And and so a lot of people just said, well, why am I watching this? It looks like a lot of fun, but I never read about it. I never hear about it. Uh, you know, and, 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 and they, we lost viewers. I mean, it was kind of like a novelty thing. And that's been a problem with arena football in some markets from the get-go. Not only were the teams poorly run, poorly funded, but it was a novelty because they never knew how to build a relationship with, with the sports media and, and develop it. Now, Detroit knew how to do it because they had the Red Wings, and they did a masterful job. Jerry Colangelo knew how to do it in Arizona because he had the Suns. Uh, and we had several other teams. Orlando was, again, the right place at the right time. They, all they had was basketball, and they had minor league baseball, of course. But the ownership there, one of them was Davey uh, Johnson, who was a, had been a manager in the major leagues, and he liked arena football, and he bought into it. But he was a guy in, in Orlando that could pick up the phone and get anything done he wanted with a sports media. And they started coming out because of him and because of Mike McMath, who had been a great player in the NFL played for Joe Paterno, and he was a part owner. So those guys had some leverage, and they knew uh, that they needed to get the sports media involved, and they took care of them. But in many markets, you know what the owners did? They'd get mad because their team wasn't on the first page. they called call up the sports editor or the publisher, or they might have played golf with it once in a while, and ream him. <laughs> and all they got was less. So, all right, last question. Last, yeah, last question. And this has been, you know, a, a, an amazing journey. And, and uh, you know, uh, after you've uh, you've done your move at home and, and all that kind of stuff, maybe we can uh, uh, delve back further uh, into sometime in next year because this has been great stuff. And I suspect that our audience is going to be just uh, uh, in, enlightened by all of this conversation. So I, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, the, the amount of time we spent. But let me ask you this sort of one sort of 
I guess, capstone question. Where do you think it goes from here, given its five or six team existence now? Um, can it come back uh, with uh, the vigor and the sort of national footprint that uh, that you willed it into being in the in the early days? Um, what do you think of this baby that you created uh, and its future uh, in the pro sports landscape? Uh, does it have uh, a robust future going forward? Because the product certainly is still very compelling. Well, I think it survives at the minimum. Uh, I would like to think it can do better than that. Now, the, the, the commissioner that's operating the league right now, uh, I think it's been around three years. I've had a little contact with him. I, I sent him a note when he came into office took over. Uh, I heard back from him. He said, I'd really like to get together with you sometime. That has never happened. Uh, we've had a, a, just a, a few scant communications just by email. Uh, he's doing his own thing. He may not feel it's necessary to, to deal with somebody like me from the past. I'm, I'm maybe I'm just a dinosaur, I, which is fine. I mean, I understand that, you know, I mean, he came out of the, out of the casino marketing business. I, I think he was very good at what he did. He had uh, some passion for sports, uh, he was hired by uh, some of the current owners, and 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 I want to address that because there's actually something positive happening there uh, if they can if they can pull it together. Uh, right uh, over the last three or four years, actually go back a little further when the league was reconstituted after shutdown after the 2008 season when Dave Baker was released relieved of his command uh, and sent on his way, uh, and that was primarily triggered by. They, we had about a half a dozen NFL owners at the table at that time, uh, or and or representatives, uh, and that happened at the uh, at the owner meetings uh, in conjunction with uh, the Arena Bowl in New Orleans in 2008, and they had had enough. There were tremendous cost overruns. The league office was. Uh, deeply in debt on its own operating budget, uh, separate from the teams that the teams were propping up the office. Uh, it was, it was a, a large office for what the league was taking. And one of the real challenges for the league was that it never really was very effective after the f- first few years. Uh, and, and some of it was because I had a marketing background. I've been promotion manager in NFL. I sold sponsorships. I used some of that uh, contact and the knowledge to, to help build that in the beginning with, uh, with the Hardys and the United Airlines and things of that nature. That, uh, that fell by the wayside in some respects over time. They hired a lot of people that thought they knew what they were doing. They didn't get it done. Uh, many of them that come from the major leagues, but they were trying to sell arena football from the top down. Again, a little bit like the NBC deal. You know, you're, you're at the top, but you, you you're selling a grassroots product, and you, and you have to approach it differently. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of miscues of that type of thing. But the, but as time went along, when we got into the reincarnation of the league, they brought in teams in some respects. Uh, some of them came from the AF2, the developmental league. They they robbed some of the larger market teams. They, none of them were really big enough markets, but they, they needed to, to fill out uh, – what they had to try to get the league back on its feet, and most of those teams failed within two or three years. They were in, you know, Spokane. They were in, uh, uh, they were in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. They were in Shreveport. I mean, it wasn't working. I mean, it, it, it was it, it was the wrong place for the league to be to try to go to the level it needed to go back to uh, when it re, when it regrouped and came back. Eventually, what happened was, and where it's at right now, that's interesting, is that they they've had a, the, the team in Tampa has been operated by the NHL franchise down there for quite a while, and they also manage the building. 
Uh, then Cleveland got involved and took a fran- put the franchise. They bought the franchise, which had been in New Jersey and was a miserable mess. And went to Las Vegas and wasn't any better. They brought it into Cleveland. And they did a good job of it. But again, you're dealing with an NBA organization that knows that they know their market. They know how to sell in the market. They've got staff in place. They've got a lot of things going for them. Uh, and if they can properly focus on arena football and make the adjustments between selling a major league established project like the NBA or the NHL, they have some chance of being successful. And that's what's happened in Tampa. And that's what happened in Cleveland. At D.C. too, they, right? D.C. and Baltimore with uh, Ted Leonsis's, uh Well, that's where I was going. And then they bring in a very strong owner. Those guys reached out, those fellows from, those owners from, ownerships from, uh, and I've not been involved with this, but I'm aware of what went on from a distance. And I, and I, and I think it's a good concept. Uh, it's a lot closer to where I would want it to be if I was still running it. And it's, and it's a route we started to go down because you've got businessmen in the sports business that approach it every day as a business, and because at the NBA and the NHL level, this is not your hobby that you go out and, you know, what are we going to do today? Should we fire the – I don't like that cheerleader the way she looks. Get rid of her. Oh, that quarterback played terrible tonight. Go get another one. I mean, some of that stuff probably still goes on in the majors occasionally, but not very often. These are expensive businesses, and they run them like a business. And that's the biggest problem with too many of these minor league franchise operations. There's some great minor league, minor league baseball – hockey, basketball, there's not much basketball around right now, but there are some good minor league operators. I happen to be living in a market where one of the best minor league operations in the country. It's a full-A baseball season team, the, the River Bandits. They won one award after another. They do a great job marketing. It's a, the guy who runs it. Um, they know is a brilliant marketer, uh, a, a, a consultant in the political business by background, but he's transferred that knowledge and done a masterful job. He took a downtrodden team here and turned it into a uh, polish the diamond. And I think that potential is there because now you're in Washington and Baltimore. Uh, they they had a tough go over the first year, but they marketed those teams very well, from what I understand from people I know in those markets. They've got the right concept. They've got the right vision, I think, to a great extent. But what they're trying to do, and I like this, if they can pull it off, is they're trying to bring in more NBA and NHL operators to run those teams. Now, there's one exception, and that's Philadelphia. Philadelphia is still privately held. It's Ron Jaworski, Dick Vermeil has a little money in it. There's a couple other guys there uh, that, that were involved with the old arena football team. Uh, uh, John Bon Jovi walked away after the shutdown in 2008, did not come back. He was the guy that bore that child, uh, made that team happen, was the driving soul behind it, literally, <laughs> in Philadelphia. Uh, but the Philadelphia soul goes on. Uh, They've had some challenges, I think, with the tenants. It's a tough market, Philadelphia. It's a big market. It's a complicated market, you know, with a lot of other sports there. Uh, but they're still in it. But they're the only non-NBA uh, or NHL uh, major league operated uh, affiliate uh, at this point. And, and I think they've been working somewhat with the NBA NHL teams. Uh, they They are going to actually manage, as I understand it, the new Albany franchise, which is kind of an interesting deal. I'm told that they were trying very hard to, to get a couple more NBA or NHL teams to buy in and, and take franchises for this year, but they couldn't get it done. And the closest they could come was that Albany wanted a team back in arena football. They worked out a deal. Uh, Philadelphia uh, is going to actually send some of their people through to help manage that. I think there's probably, and I'm speaking not from a 
absolutely positive standpoint, but I'm told that there's going to be some oversight from uh, from the NBA NHL ownership side too. So their goal is is to try to build a, a solid league run by a major league, you know, primarily NHL and NBA operations where this is an off-season product for them. We, we've had some success with that in the past. We had success, as we've already talked about, with Colangelo, uh, Colangelo's and the, and the Suns operation, the Rattlers, now, certainly with the Detroit Drive and Spades uh, and what they did there. Uh, and unfortunately, Mike Gillis just passed away in the last year and a half, I think. It, uh, and so that opportunity probably went out the window with, with Mike being gone to go back into Detroit with a, with that situation. And they're building a new arena in downtown Detroit, too, right now. Uh, so they're trying to pick their way through these teams and see if they can find some opportunities. Uh, and I think they've got to demonstrate uh, that the potential is there to make it work again. Now, I, I should also add that uh, we had some, some, some train wrecks and some things that didn't work too well uh, with NHL and NBA teams. We had a, the Detroit Fury came back in some years later. Mike Illich got out for one simple reason. He finally got his dream. He was able to buy the Detroit Tigers, and that, that was a big, big nut and, uh, and a big challenge. And they did a good job with it overall, but when they did it, uh, he and his wife privately owned the entire uh, Little Caesars Empire, uh, Enterprises, the, all the things they do, they did it as husband and wife, uh, outstanding to a team of two. Uh, she was the financial wizard, and Mike was the guy that put things together and made it happen. Uh, and when they got the, when they brought the baseball team, he basically had didn't have the time to do everything, so he divested himself of the of the uh, of the drive. I will tell you, Mike Gillis told me one day early on when he got involved, he said, Jim. And I witnesses to this. He said, if this is run properly, if you get the right people to run the teams, if you run it as a tight, well-greased league, people on the same page. Uh, and this was before we ended up going. And actually, it's right people running. He was not talking about owners at that time. If you can do what you got in your in your plan and your vision, your your business model, he said, this can be a sixth major league or fifth major league someday. It's that good the product itself. Well, obviously we never quite got there yet, but maybe it still will. And so now you've got another effort at it. We had a team in Columbus run by the Columbus uh, Blue Jackets. They did okay, not great. Uh, they did a decent job. We've had a couple others come and go over the years where, uh, you know, they, NHL, NBA teams got involved. Uh, and sometimes the problem was that they just couldn't get their own people to focus on the arena football team and buy into it because they were hockey people or they were NBA people and they didn't really want to spend, they didn't want to divide their time into something else. And, and oh, St. Louis was a big problem. We had the St. Louis Stampede. The hockey team was told to buy, the Blues were told to buy the franchise because the ownership group, which saved hockey and, and kept them in uh, St. Louis back in the 90s, was a group. Uh, of large businesses, Ralston Perina, Budweiser, McLeod Gas. They were afraid they were going to lose their hockey team. They ended up building a brand new arena down a beautiful facility, and they kept it. But in the process, they began to realize as businesses uh, overlooking this pro this problem child they bought or this project that they needed more programming in the building. So they said, let's buy an arena football team. Looks like it might work. And it could have worked in St. Louis, uh, except for two things. One, Probably not the best market because the Cardinals are so strong there. But we'll look at what's happened to the Rams. They're gone. I mean, when it push comes to shove, that baseball field, and I'm not saying the baseball team by itself ran off the Cardinals the first time, or the Rams, I should say the Rams the second time. It's just that 
they're, they're dominant there. And there's certain markets where baseball in a smaller market like St. Louis can be a problem. I mean, they, they own the media. But at the same time, uh, the hockey team didn't really want to do anything to help it. I actually had good friends in St. Louis used to call me and say, I can't even find anything about the the football team. Earl Bruce was the head coach. He was doing a great job. They had a good team. It was exciting. We had some great battles with the Barnstormers. Uh, really good games, both there and in Des Moines. But it wasn't registering. So, I mean, there's been various problems with this concept and, and pluses with what they're trying to do right now. I wish them the best. I hope it works. Uh, I think they're on the right track because you're getting as long as you can do the things I said need to happen, uh, I think they can grow it again. And I think it would be more solid. Think about all the connections they have with with, with the sports world uh, and with the sports media, both regionally and nationally. Think about all the connections they have with television. I mean, they have a lot of the inroads that the guy that buys the franchise for, you know, Kansas City doesn't have because he's a banker. You know, he may know some guys around town, but that doesn't make him what an NBA ownership could be for a team. So, yeah, I, I hope they can, they can rebuild it. I mean, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're small right now. I think it's a bit problematic that they're all clustered pretty much on, in the east, uh, with the exception of, of Tampa. And I know they tried to get another team down in that direction, but couldn't get it done. At least that's what I'm told, anyhow, for this year. But they're going to go forward, and, and, you know, hopefully they, they – can take what they're doing and, and grow it. I mean, we had to grow the league from six teams in, in 1988, you know, and, and go from there. And, and we went, we had our misfires too, because it was franchising more than anything else, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is what it is. So it's still a good game. All right, there it is. There's the second part of our two-parter, our first two-parter, with Jim Foster. And, um, you know, I think, frankly, we may need to have Jim back uh, in the coming months. Uh, And I think it might be even uh, good to do so uh, after we see sort of what happens with uh, the Arena League uh, schedule this year, if indeed there is one, uh, given that there, again, come January, we're recording this in January, there are only four teams still um, rattling around and um, not sure if uh, the season's going to happen this year, but uh, it's clear that the uh, the sport of arena football is uh, is a solid concept and uh, in many respects, I think, and very interestingly, uh, might need to go back to its roots uh, from the, uh, the, day, the days of, uh, of Jim's original concept and, and idea for this sport. Uh, and in particular, as you heard uh, in, in great detail, uh, perhaps a, a shift back to uh, the original proposition when the AFL uh, was uh, centrally owned uh, and, uh, and not franchised. And you heard uh, Jim obviously talk that uh, talk about how uh, franchising is, is uh, not necessarily the way that he thought that the league would be most strong uh, and, and self-supportive and uh, perhaps uh, his, uh, his inclinations, you know, from from when this thing was getting going back in the late 80s uh, has proven correct, uh, perhaps unfortunately now, but perhaps also the seeds of what uh, the league and the sport look like going forward. So uh, we're going to definitely keep in touch with Jim uh, and uh, hopefully have him back perhaps in the spring and early summer uh, to maybe continue our conversation in a part three. But uh, again, if you didn't get a chance to listen to part one of our interview with Jim, uh, please, by all means, do so. Find our uh, episode number 43 wherever you pod 
Uh, of course, though, you can also find that episode as you can find all of our previous episodes at uh, our website, which is goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, it is there, of course, that you will find uh, also uh, our email uh, address if you want to send us a, a note. Uh, and of course, if you want to follow us on uh, social media, you can find all of our outposts there. But uh, to remind, uh, on Twitter that we're at uh, Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available, and of course, you'll also find a little uh, web page devoted to us uh, on the Facebook system. Just look for Good Seats Still Available there. Uh, let's see. We want to thank before we run our friends at Podfly Productions, Podfly.net, Jerry Payne, and the boys uh, and girls. Uh, if uh, you need some podcast help, uh, you want to kick in the butt to get going, learn about all the, the fun stuff of how to do podcasting, or frankly, if you're a pro and you just want some expert uh, uh, editing and production skills, that's the place you can find it at Podfly Productions. Again, podfly.net. We thank Jerry and friends uh, for their, uh, their hard work, as always, uh, in this week's episode. Okay, I'm done. We'll talk to you next week with another fun-filled episode. Who knows what sport? and team or league we'll be talking about, but I assure you it'll be intriguing and you'll learn a lot as I do. Thanks for listening. Take care. 